welcome to In Process, a series of intimate conversations with emerging Stanford artists about setting out on the creative path. And today we're in the sonic zone with Anna Tskovrobov, surprising our ears with everything from birdsong to hacked 1970s computers. Anna has a particularly compelling creative path for all the techies out there, coming from a hard engineering background to synthesize a unique approach to her art practice that marries technical precision with ethereal creativity. From ambisonics to plant-based installations, tune in for a dusky listen. You're probably the only guest who will um, come on this show ever who will have driven across Australia in a solar-powered car. <laughs> What's the story there? Uh, so when I was at Stanford, I was uh, part of the Stanford Solar Car Project, which culminated in a, a semester-long or quarter-long journey to Australia to test and then race the car that we built over the course of two years or so. And I was lucky enough, or maybe unlucky enough, to be the the driver, uh, one of three. And um, yeah, it was a cool, it was uh, terrifying, definitely some of the closest to death experiences I've had, mm. but also uh, taught me a lot of patience and perseverance and was a very, uh, in the end, kind of a meditative experience once you're, once you're there and and spending the hours in the car, uh, which is something I, I look back to very fondly and is actually quite inspiring. I think. Do you ever think about that that drive when you're making music today? Actually, yeah, I would I would say so. I think I I collect a lot of my memories of of places uh, and feelings that places give me somewhere in my in my heart or my head and I I definitely look to those things for creative inspiration in, in a lot of the things I do. I miss California. Was that also a major source of inspiration for you in in your art? Uh, it's a lot of different places. Hmm. Yeah. And they're they're connected maybe in in a sense of, of vastness or expanse hmm. or also contrast, maybe a contrast between something uh, like a city and then something very natural nearby or contrast between uh, water and, and cliffs falling into the water, mm. something like this. It was always uh, something I was drawn to since I was young, I guess, in Russia and where I grew up in New York. Tell us a little bit more about your upbringing. Well, in it's funny because in, in America, I was always considered... Uh, the Russian, the Russian girl. Hmm. And then when I went to Russia, I was always considered the American girl. I guess I got used to being, having one foot in each place and not feeling quite like I fit in with either one ever. But in that also getting a perspective maybe that uh, is more unusual and also very enriching. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of room to play there, actually. Because mm -hmm. you don't feel confined to, to any one thing necessarily once you realize how arbitrary those those labelings are anyway. You were originally a mechanical engineer, um, but you made this shift at Stanford into audio engineering. How did that happen? <laughs> um, 
I can very, I tend to easily point to uh, one experience that I had, which was an internship at Volkswagen here in Germany, actually. I had uh, been in Berlin to study on the tip of a few Datakai friends and then enrolled in the Krupp internship program and thought, oh, it, yeah, it would be nice to, to work in a different country for a little bit and, and see what uh, the things I have learned can allow me to do in the world. And I was working in the mechanical engineering research department uh, on renewable uh, or rather more lightweight <coughs> materials for chassis components. Um, so, yeah, in this vein of, of uh, more renewable or efficient transportation, which is always what I was interested in. And I just was very discouraged by the experience of working for an engineering corporation mm -hmm. and thought that uh, it would be in their power probably to actually make changes because they have money and scope. I don't know, but I, I noticed that um, no matter how strong an engineer's idea might have been, and this is not only at, at Volkswagen, uh, it just, there's so much overhead to... Uh, executing a lot of these things, especially in somewhere like the automotive industry where fleet turnover is like 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so you might be working on something for years and, and because of bureaucracy or government policies or whatever, it's just never going to be implemented. So I kind mm -hmm. of had this like, I guess, moment of frustration with how that all works and feeling maybe of powerlessness. And I sometimes look back to that that branch of my life and think, um, you know, was it the right choice? What mm -hmm. was I just in the wrong place to make a change? But I think that in that moment, I also discovered, uh, a deep love for, or yeah, one that I already had. So I would say I discovered it, uh, mm -hmm. love for the intersection between art and engineering, which was also opened up to me a bit by being in Berlin. Mm. Uh, coming here the first time around because I, I think I noticed how seriously people take their creative pursuits and how seriously art is spoken about and uh, viewed, which is a little bit less the case I, I feel in San Francisco. It's just a little bit less accessible or, or prevalent or mm. taken as seriously, maybe because it doesn't make as much money as tech, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, then I, I also, because I, I knew some people who were already studying at Karma and I had taken a few uh, classes there as well, I thought that, hmm, actually, this might be a good place to go because, uh, <laughs> well, it combines those those two interests simply. It's, hmm. it's still um, a pretty serious engineering degree in a way, but uh, the applications are so much more widespread, I think, creative, yeah. Sure, sure. Just for the, the listeners, um, could you tell us what Karma is, for those who might not know? Oh, yes. Uh, Karma is the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics, and it's a part of the uh, music department at, at Stanford. It's, it's based in the Knoll, just the building up on the hill. You might have seen it. Um, that's where I got my, my master's in music, science, and technology. 
And the courses there are a combination of um, sort of more engineering classes to do with digital signal processing, which is kind of the core uh, engineering uh, um, curriculum through the through the master's program. But there are also a lot of courses uh, where you might make installations or have peer peer review workshops, making making some uh, musical compositions. Maybe working on ambisonics. There's really so much. So much one can do there and really lovely people as well. Yeah, Karma to me, I mean, it always seemed like this mysterious place of the dark arts <laughs> where people were working on their mad scientist creations and such cool stuff came out of that. Um, what was it like going into that kind of environment after working at Volkswagen and doing a very intense engineering course at Stanford? I think academically, it was no less rigorous, actually. It was probably the hardest, some of the hardest courses I've taken. Um, but something that was really nice, refreshing, and a total change was that I didn't feel like I had some separation between my work and also my life, or rather my in, or my interests mm. anymore. And I could uh, talk to my professors about the DJ gig I was going to play that night, and they would be <laughs> excited about it and find it also relevant yeah. to everything else that's going on. Whereas in mechanical engineering, I was a little bit of the the artsy one, you know, the other, <laughs> which was also which was also <laughs> enriching and fun. Though. <laughs> I'm curious. Do you think um, experimental music? had played a role in your life um, before your shift to karma and a, a more musically oriented lifestyle? Yeah. I don't think my, I think my lifestyle was already musically oriented before. It didn't really come out of nowhere. Mm. I mean, I've been playing instruments since I was quite young and listening to weird music since I was uh, in, the, in the stroller. When I would when I would cry and my mom couldn't calm me down, my dad would just take me in his car and drive me around. We would listen to Pink Floyd together. <laughs> <laughs> kind of my first musical exposures, probably. Wow, that's a a trip for a baby, I'm sure. <laughs> baby. Seeing rainbows in the in the stroller. I always stopped crying. <laughs> I seem to like them. Do you still listen to Pink Floyd? I do once in a while, yeah. Once in a good while. When my, my parents came to visit Karma, we went to listen to the wall in the, the listening room. Wow. Which was a blissful experience, yeah. Full circle. Yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. Indeed. What kind of stuff uh, were you working on at Karma? Could you tell us about a, a project that you're still interested by and proud of? I really enjoyed the courses in ambisonics and mm. and learning about spatial sound and composition and still think back many times to uh, a guest lecturer. We had Natasha Barrett. I think I may have told you about her because uh, her work is also kind of relevant to a project that we're going to be working on together. Mm. And she played with this boundary between a more recording-like sonic landscape, which is kind of photorealistic, and then uh, this process of entering a more abstract composition that might have been created from those sounds. So this like morphological journey between 
real and not real in mm. an ambisonic format, I think is really powerful. And yeah, there were a, f- a few installations that were quite fun to work on, which had some environmental reactivity aspects. Um, like another one, I believe I, I told you about that tracked the motion of a tree, uh, trees, branches swaying in the wind to incite uh, some turbulence in a fluid simulation that's being projected back onto the landscape, creating this kind of uh, digital plus organic wind, light, glimmering, symbiotic alien zone thing. Um, <laughs> and I think I, sh- I should get back into working on, on some more weird space creation like that i hope you do i i really would love to see the the tree branch one at some point i hope you recreate it because it sounds so cool i think it could work in berlin somewhere there's so much foliage here Mm -hmm. (laughs) i think it would actually be so popular Mm -hmm. people really are into their plants (laughs) yeah it's true (laughs) it's very true um briefly what are ambisonics Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Um, Amazonics is a format for spatializing sound, uh, which is based on the idea that you can have any amount of speakers arranged in a loosely spherical shape. And if you tell the software decoding system where your speakers are, you can translate this almost kind of vectorized spherical soundscape to the signals that need to go to those speakers such that when you stand in the middle you feel like you're back in that in that 360 space if you ever have uh people listening a chance to see an installation with ambisonic sound or purely ambisonic sound you should absolutely go it's very immersive or you can go to one of the karma ambisonics concerts which happen i think once a year in the spring usually in Bing, in the smaller room of Bing Concert Hall, and they bring out their ambisonics system, and it's lovely. Oh, I missed that when I was there. Oh, no. I really didn't make the most use of karma, i got to say. <laughs> it's kind of, that's a regret I have. Let's go back for a round two. PhD, PhDs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Three years down the line, screw the artist stuff. We're going to become academics again. <laughs> it's possible. Okay, so... As is now obviously the case, you ended up in Berlin um, and you ended up in Berlin working with Robert Henke on a really fascinating um, project called CBM um, 8032AV, uh, which is an incredible synthesis of art and technology and we'll get into it in a bit. But how did you, how did that happen? How did you get to work with Robert? It's a very lucky chance, basically, that when I was finishing up my studies at Karma and trying to figure out where where to go, what to do next, mainly looking at some some jobs in San Francisco, actually, but knowing that at some point I would be interested to leave the Bay. And... Uh, a very big thanks to Netta Worthy, who is the administrator at Karma. She 
is uh, a, a lovely human, and she knew about she knew about you know where I was at with those things, and she had noticed that uh, Robert had posted on Facebook that he needed somebody to come develop software for these eight bit computers that he was using to make a concert with in the following year. And she, she couldn't, she connected us and, um, we had a chat and it felt like a good match. And before I knew it, I (laughs) ended up in Berlin. So, uh, it was, yeah, kind of happened, happened chance. Um, but I'm very lucky that that happened because, uh, it really started a, a nice, path of things and interesting work that's come come my way mm-hmm. and was an awesome experience mm-hmm. can you kind of give an overview of what cbm is as a project yeah so it's a, a concert piece which is based on five uh custom refurbished commodore 8032 computers um with a 6502 processing chip which was dev- Released in 1979, 1980-ish mm. was when people were, were buying these computers as, as PCs, uh, mainly for use in, in labs and such. So mm. you couldn't do quite too much with them yet because it was still uh, text-based, green on black, cathode ray tube, but already some RAM and uh, just enough processing power to do what you need to do. Yeah, so we modified three of the computers to generate audio and one of them to create an output uh, a video ish signal which is more algorithmically generated visuals rather than video per se and then a fifth computer is uh, like a control unit that Robert uses during the concert Mm -hmm. as a sequencer Mm -hmm. kind of like a tracker software or a step sequencer that uh, controls what the other four do to create an audiovisual, um, I don't know, journey. <laughs> it's a one hour long journey. Cool. So kind of like the fifth one is the brain of the other ones. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> and so Robert is, um, during the performance, Robert is actually playing music himself. He is, yes, he's, he's triggering different, little scenes so tiny sub scenes of each piece um and the the pattern so maybe the order of notes or say the melody as an example might have been he, he had written that already and the pattern is in the, in memory but he's choosing uh when to play what and also working real time with uh effects so he has an effects rack that all that audio is routed to and there's a ton of improvisation there, which makes every performance sonically very different from the next. Robert presumably made the music um, for for the show. What was your role on CBM? So my role began a little bit more uh, loosely. I didn't really, I wasn't really sure what was going to happen because I didn't. I just had to learn assembly, you know, in the first few months, assembly language, mm. uh, and. I remember coding things like like Game of Life, these little simple programming programming challenges, just trying to get used to it. And then I began to implement a few of the visual sketches that Robert had made uh, prior to my arrival. And because we thought that the visuals would be 
a little bit trickier than the audio. That's why we started with them. Hmm. And then as I was implementing those, I just started to have some other ideas about what can be done visually because I was getting sort of accustomed to the programming language and what the computer did and didn't want to do or hmm. I would just notice a little branch sort of like, oh, but if we just did this slightly differently, we would get a totally different result. Is this something that we want to explore? And then the process became a little bit more of a back and forth. And uh, I think we found also a, sim a kind of symbiosis in our in our ideas of what the project could be. And uh, Robert had a lot of trust in me and, and mm. ended up giving me a lot of responsibility with the visual side of the project. I also worked a bit uh, to make the sequencing software happen, which was really fun because I was designing a UX and a UI for that matter for just one person. Um, and his needs were sometimes changing. Sometimes a new idea would come up that I had to implement quickly. And it's always kind of a living, breathing work in progress that goes along, it changes as we learn more from each performance. Mm -hmm. What was it like working with computers from 1979, these like old um, veterans of computer technology? <laughs> Different <laughs> than working with a MacBook? <laughs> Certainly. It's it's not even the same. It feels like a different medium in a way, a little bit. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's no debugger, for example. Uh, mm. This might sound esoteric, but, you know, basically, if you are writing a program now, a software program, and if, well, it won't even compile, actually, if you have a syntax error, for example. That's not the case with these computers. You put one wrong hex character into memory, mm. and you actually could even break that you could even over uh write for example some of the memory that contains the operating system oh my god all of a sudden your computer is like off or the screen is like blinking at a different uh at a different frequency uh, or maybe oh something's even kind of smelling kind of oh weird like you just don't know so um it's a pretty different working methodology because you just have to take care of so many little things that you now wouldn't have to worry about. And, but there's a beauty in that as well, because hey, you're like caring for your little computer baby. I'm, I'm interested, I guess, in, in asking these sorts of questions because CBM represents such a, a contemporary way of creating art where, um, art and technology are symbi symbiotic in a way and they're, they're mutually feeding into each other. How would you characterize your relationship with uh, the computers as both a, a tool in creating the work um, and also a partner in a sense? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think at the end of the day, the computer is nothing without the human. So far, it was interesting to both explore the inherent aesthetics of the computer and the operating system, say, which is, you know, something that some somebody else designed some decades ago. Someone else was designing the 
set of characters, the, the pixeled characters that we use to make all of the visuals. So there's some stuff that's that's already there and is kind of a a characteristic of the computer. But um, I mean, this project in itself wouldn't exist if if there weren't ideas that uh, drive it into exactly what it is. In mm. the sense that if someone else had refurbished these computers and made a concert with them, it wouldn't. It would be totally different. Maybe someone would still be comparing it to the Matrix just because it's green, <laughs> but I really don't understand why. <laughs> the green is nice, but it's not necessarily about the green. Mm-hmm. We love the green, though. But it is interesting because to me, I think, I mean, obviously the Matrix comparison is is unfair and reductive. Um, and green and black, I would say, is more synonymous just with computer aesthetics uh, than, than anything else. It is interesting here with... Um, the use of this hardware. These computers were designed purely functionally, but you've repurposed them to be expressive and emotive. Do you feel like these computers had this potential within them all along or that you invested in them an aesthetic and and an artistic potential? I guess the idea of the project was that uh, the potential was always there, but the context for the material maybe wasn't because at that time was when digital arts were basically just beginning to come more widespread. Mm. And so no one was really thinking to do something like that, which makes sense. Mm. Um, but physically it was possible. And that's kind of the uh, the founding idea of, of the project from Robert, I suppose. And mm. I think, yeah, that would be the the clear feeling I have as well. Mm-hmm. I get, yeah, I guess it makes sense also because I'm just thinking now that in a way you could look at um, many, if not all, artistic mediums is doing a similar sort of process of taking something such as color pigments for painting that have no inherent artistic use outside of outside of humans but we've repurposed um colorful ores and and minerals to create representations of nature and people and, and emotions and so why shouldn't that be the case also for something that we've already built it's like it's like one step further removed from its source of origin and, I, and maybe I'm maybe I'm sort of staying on this point because I think sometimes more traditional audiences and artists um, view art that involves machines and algorithms as being not quite art or like hmm. semi art because the human hasn't done everything mm-hmm. like they've had they've cheated almost you know and I just, that doesn't feel accurate to me. I think it depends on what we're talking about. Um, I mean, uh, to be honest, in this case, we did do, we made every single part. Like uh, there was nothing there before to draw or make any sounds or anything Mm -hmm. like that. But um, there might be another moment where, I mean, even on a daily basis, you know, I might uh, use a, a preset on a software instrument and that in a way mm. is um 
something that someone could look at and say, oh, well, the computer, the computer is doing that, that automation for you, that filter sweep, like you didn't mm. put it in there yourself. Um, but in that case, I also think, well, sure, if, if every single sound I use and if everything I, I made is, is, a, is completely derivative from what the computer offered, Actually, I don't even think that would be possible. I think in the end, it's all still original as long as the person was the one who decided how to put the stuff together, mm, mm -hmm. which is why the human, I think, will be indispensable in the art-making process for a long time um, because, you know, uh, a machine learning algorithm can only spit out a series of things related to what you told it about before. It won't think to combine something new mm. to new things, for example. Um, and yeah, mm. people are critical of, of displays of technology for the sake of displays of technology. And I, I think I am as well, mm. but it's usually, you can kind of I think you can just feel it when that is the case versus when a human has, in addition to the presence of the computer or the algorithm, put their heart and their soul into it. Mm. And those two things can both be mm -hmm. present. I already feel that, yeah, it's more about the um, the experience that the artist is able to create, whether it's using analog or organic materials or something more digital and data-driven. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think the maybe the one fear which i think is sometimes justified um but often unfounded is that this leads to uh, this kind of process can lead to generic art or art that doesn't feel uh in as individual um as other forms of art i mean i, I definitely sometimes feel when I'm working in something like After Effects, which is an, uh, a visual effects software, um, that, yeah, it's too easy. You know, you can just throw a couple of visual filters over a piece of footage and it looks weird and alien. I'm like, cool, this is great. And actually I could probably just present this now, but mm -hmm. I took like 20 minutes to do this. You know? That's how I feel about um stretching out a piece of audio the recording of recording of the street stretching it out putting a little reverb on yeah. it like oh yeah i could put this in a, a gallery or something as a little sound, sound backdrop what's your approach then to giving it investing in it that yeah, individual expression and a soul i guess yeah i think that this is this is a little bit new for me hmm. um but it's also something i've observed others do and I have worked with this in mind before but I would like to apply more to my own work is to just have a slightly more clear concept of like what the thing is about um, because especially I feel like when you're making very abstract electronic music at least for me after a couple of years behind the screen alone basically in that world mm -hmm. it just started to become a little bit meaningless. Mm. And I wasn't feeling much anymore. And then how is anyone else supposed to feel something or what, what is even the point at that point? Totally. There's no point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think 
having a driving concept is nice. Um, like this album idea that I told you about, uh, which kind of summarizes a lot of my both sonic or aesthetic and technical interests. Um, mm. This narration of, of moving through the sonic world of nature into an urban landscape. Um, we'll see. We'll see where it goes because um, I've also been excited about working with other people, mm. which is, I think, more meaningful to me. I think whenever you have collaborators, it's um, it's easier to avoid the void. Uh, I'm going to work with some singers and some drummers, and I'm really looking forward to that. Mm. I think all it, to answer it from a different perspective, maybe more abstractly, and also thinking back to something like CBM, um, I think you, it's important to, as I said, have a feeling about it. Like you have to have an opinion about what you've just made and then you can make it different in a way that's personal because it has to do with your feeling about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that process of, of iteration and changing something, looking back, maybe walking even further back in the room, looking at it from a different angle, <laughs> maybe waiting until the next day and just letting your inner voice guide what needs to happen. Like you already know if you're working on something that you care about and love, even if you don't 100% kill every single element of it, because whoever does that, mm. um, you know where the thing should go. Mm. And if you just trust that and and listen to yourself and let it come out, um, it's going to be cool. That's interesting. Also, speaking about intuition, you're someone who I really admire for your intuitive abilities um, and your ability to to follow your heart and listen to your gut. Is that something you've always had? Do you think? <laughs> Maybe I'm just a fool. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess so. I've always noticed that it leads me into interesting places. And maybe I've been lucky in that sense too, that my maybe even naivete in certain situations hasn't led me to strange spots usually. Because I sometimes see myself on the side and think that, well, this intuition could be completely wrong mm. and I could be really in a bad situation now. Um, and that doesn't really happen so often. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, let's keep riding that wave. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Do you think, do you feel like, do you ever feel like you use your intuitive side when you're programming or is that? purely logical <laughs> it's dangerous it's actually a fun challenge for me to do something like uh digital signal processing mm. and especially the mathematics associated with it because it's very unintuitive <laughs> 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 yeah i mean some things you can try to develop an intuitive understanding for but sometimes you think you have the intuition and then you're operating on that assumption and 10 steps down the line, you realize that actually you're just completely wrong <laughs> because there's um, an imaginary number in there or something. I don't know, whatever it is. So I think that 
the answer is I try not to. Maybe in terms of style um, of, of the code itself or um, maybe some more designing decisions. Mm. Yeah, sure. But in terms of getting it right, no. There's no intuition really in math, I feel like. Mm. Maybe some people have that, but I didn't. I don't have that insight. I had to learn math, you know. Speaking about digital signal processing, um, you're one of the only artists who we've interviewed so far who has a full-time job um, at Ableton, of all places, uh, which is a really awesome uh, music software company uh, creating uh, music tools, uh, I would say a music toolbox for uh, musicians, electronic musicians. What's your role there? Yeah, I started working there in November of last year on the team that builds instruments, music instruments and audio effects for the main software and the other uh, products as well. But mainly they go into live, which is the DAW, Digital Audio Work Station slash mm. Toolbox. I like the word toolbox. Mm. I am working in C++, mainly getting maybe an idea from a designer uh, about a new tool, a new effect, a new instrument that we want to make, and then uh, prototyping, discussing with the designer again, kind of prototyping again, many iterations of this and then finally productionizing things and releasing them with the next software. Some of the artists who uh, we've interviewed and I think just artists in general are often afraid of taking a full-time full job, I think, and um, because they fear that it's going to drain them creatively or suck their soul in some way. And I think that can happen, obviously. For you, that doesn't seem to be the case. What's synergistic about working in Ableton and making music and still feeling creative? Well, naturally, since it's one of the most related things I could be doing as a job in terms of what I'm doing in free time with as music, for example. Um, of course, all of the knowledge that you gain from working on the tool you're using is indispensable and inspiring as mm -hmm. well. Because, um, yeah, when you're talking to a coworker about a new feature they're working on and they give you the pitch for, for why it's great, uh, you're going to get excited about it and you're going to want to use it and then you're making music again. Um, so that's a really awesome element of being there. I feel like I'm never going to get bored. I can spend the whole day just, <laughs> just looking through our Slack channels, <laughs> talking to talking to people about what they're doing. There's so much, there's so much going on. Um, so in that sense, it's really good. And... I think the other option would be to have more of a divide between creative life and work life. Um, because that could also, I mean, in a way, also sometimes when I'm working a full day, at the end of the day, I do not want to look at live anymore. You <laughs> yes. know? Um, 
and and some people have success working at a job that has nothing to do with their creative pursuits and then coming home and and making music for six hours or or something but I think either way um I've just been trying to to keep my belief that having a job can should not and and does not actually prevent people from from being creative necessarily I remember um meeting a friend of mine from San Francisco, Saper. He came to Berlin uh, to play a show in, in Panorama Bar. He's an amazing music producer, mm. something in between house, breakbeat, techno, mm. um, really beautiful music. And he gave me a little bit of a pep talk and he said something like, um, you know, Anna, what are you doing? Like, just start making tracks. I have a full-time job. There's nothing, there's no excuses. <laughs> there's no, like, oh, I, I have to do this now and I'm going to meet this one now and I'm, I'm working too much this week. No, I have a full-time job too. And look at me, I'm banging out an album every half a year. Mm. And he's right. And that was great. That was great, you know? Definitely always listen to to people that you uh, that that you look up to or or just hang hang around them for long enough and they'll drop little snippets on you like that. <laughs> That will that will just stay with you. And anytime I, I I'm slacking off for too long, I just think about what he said, and I just get back on it. Mm. I wish I I had a, a mentor like that. Um, I think you've had some really cool mentors. Um, how do you go about finding a mentor, or do you feel like they come to you? I think they're just all around. I really do feel like everybody has something to share. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like listening to everybody mm. around you. And maybe some one person will just give you one or two snippets. And then maybe someone else, you realize that uh, you've been doing similar things. So the questions can go a little bit deeper or they mm. have time to help you or, or something like this. But, um, yeah, just being out in the world, I guess, kind of randomly. I haven't had, uh, I haven't had a process of of looking specifically for a mentor or anything like that. It's always just been kind of chance. Yeah. Mm. What's it like working at Ableton, where you're building this toolbox for musicians? In some way, you're somewhat responsible for shaping the sounds that people get to play with. Do you feel like um, a sense of responsibility? It's funny. I haven't thought about that in a few months because I've been so deep in the work, but I definitely mentioned that one in the job interview, you know? I was mm. like, oh, I think it's very interesting <laughs> that we get to do this, um, which it is. And I think it's funny that sometimes um, Robert, Robert can recall you know, early 2000s moments when everyone was just using the native Ableton plugins in their live sets and he could recognize mm. the sounds of the instruments he was making, which is interesting. And yeah, I think actually it's a huge responsibility because, um, I mean, mainly I just, I think, I hope that people are, are happy using this stuff because, uh, yeah, what we what we give them is is what they get. They can't tweak it afterwards. Um, and the sounds, I think it's important to try to make 
at this point, things that are really versatile uh, to avoid this kind of thing we were discussing before of like, oh, everything sounds exactly the same. And so maybe developing algorithms that have a very expanded set of potential outputs with different uh, parameter settings, for example, is desirable um, and feels like a better move on our part in a way. Mm. But also you don't want to give people too much choice in regions that are are not pleasant that we I guess we've decided are not pleasant. <laughs> so it's tricky. Yeah, it's really it's a complicated question. I don't think there's a single answer. But it's definitely um kind of crazy to think about like how many people will end up using it. Such a cool job to have and I I think allows you a really unique way into the art that you um make by yourself for sure and like a much more technical uh foundation than a lot of us have um maybe let's talk a little bit about your music um and how you do balance a full-time job with making art how do you get into a creative space um where you feel like you can you can begin to make music i try not to do too much of it in the evenings after work actually I try to relax a bit at that time and not look at the screen anymore um I did start not working on Fridays a few months ago so Mm. 32 hour work week which is highly recommended for anyone who could possibly do it because 40 hours a week of of one thing Behind a screen is simply a lot. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> well, too much for me. I was about to say too much, too much for me. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I like to have some chunks blocked out, uh, some chunks of time blocked out, usually in the morning, early afternoon on a weekend or on a Friday. And that's when I feel like I can start a project, which then once there's a foundational idea uh for for a track for example i can go in on on tuesday night for an hour and just make some edits and then call it done and put it up on soundcloud or whatever i mean i'm not at the moment haven't been making super serious long format works or anything it's just Mm. kind of an exploration but uh i am also interested in practicing the idea of starting an idea and finishing it Mm. so i don't want i don't just do the like fiddle for an hour thing (laughs) that's why i like to have these slightly longer chunks um but i feel like i can't really create an a holistic idea or at least an idea that's like strong enough to stand on its own for later unless i have uh yeah maybe three or four hours minimum Mm -hmm. to work Mm -hmm. consecutively basically for sure and music electronic music I think I guess music in general seems really difficult for me as someone who is going out and capturing footage and then I'm working with the footage it's there I don't have to like invent it um what's that process like of like having to 
bring the thing to life from scratch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, I've been treating that a little bit by uh, using more field recordings, actually. <laughs> <laughs> nice. uh, because it's exactly what you just said. You, you have something to start with. And that's been, uh, I've had a lot of success and fun with that recently to uh, start with a recording of a nice or weird sound that I liked <laughs> or a little piece of the atmosphere or something. Um, and then maybe challenge myself to only add, say, a rhythm to it or create a rhythm out of that Mm. uh, with usually a drum machine. And then there's already something there (laughs) (laughs) before you know it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Some days maybe it's harder than others to, to show up to the blank page but I feel like in recent times I rarely have a total block I've been working especially in the last one year or so on being able to just turn out sort of like little etudes which are Mm. like uh, when you learn to play an instrument you play like these little tiny composition thingies that just help you to practice Mm. and I try to do the same with the electronic music I work on because it for me it was too easy to start some in the past it was too easy to start something and then just be working on it forever to try to finish it to make Mm. it something good when actually I didn't like the idea the second time I listened to it Mm. so why did I keep working on it um it's much I think healthier for me at least to have days where I just sit, sit down and say all right I got three hours and I'm just gonna I'm just going to ha- create an idea. And if I like it, I like it. If I don't, it doesn't matter. Mm. And then you have much less anxiety going up to that blank page mm. because you're like, oh, I'll just mess around for a little bit. Mm. Uh, I think it's a really beautiful way to work. Um, and I, I think a great way to learn in general and to develop skills in general is isolating, isolating, um, patterns and rhythms and techniques um it's a really good tip um it also makes so much sense to me that field recordings really work for you because another quality of yours that i admire again is your ability to isolate sounds from the environment and really zoom in Mm. to details in the soundscape which most of us, myself included, miss. We just filter our brains are just filtering them out. It's not important. But for you, I remember we were doing a shoot recently, and you heard um, a cigarette rolling on escalators. And I was blown away by that. It's like such a microscopic sound. Um, how do your ears do that naturally, or are you going out and listening for that stuff? I don't think it's natural. I think, as you said, the brain, as we grow up, more naturally learns to filter everything out and only hear what's going to have some kind of meaning to us. Um, But in the last few years, for better or for worse, (laughs) Mm. I've kind of changed that about my brain. (laughs) I think it was just correctly so taught to me at at karma, really. Mm. Yeah. 
even before I, I went for the master's, I, I took an arts intensive. And if anyone's ever got to, gotten to work with uh, Sasha Lightman, they'll, they'll remember mm. uh, how much wisdom she imparted on everyone <laughs> that she shared her thoughts with. She was probably the one who helped me to develop that kind of ear. One of our first assignments in that arts intensive was to pick one piece of music and listen to it for an hour straight. Um, which I hadn't done before, I think, or maybe I had, I'm sure I've had, had, had done that before. Uh, but we also were meant to write about it. So write down, I think there was a certain number of details that we had to write down about the piece of music, like 50 or something. And I remember picking, uh, one, one, maybe nine or 10 minute long fortet track, uh, can't remember now which one it is, but I could pick it out when I heard it. Maybe th this unfolds, maybe mm -hmm. this one. I just remember that as maybe one of the points at the beginning of that journey. Because uh, it really forced me to listen to detail. And also Fortet includes a lot of these little tiny, so intricate. tiny details here and there, which could, could fly by unnoticed as well. Mm. And the whole world is like that. It's crazy. I go outside sometimes now and I'm... Uh, overwhelmed because my brain is not filtering the stuff out <laughs> and a lot of the times it's really interesting and beautiful and there's so much extra information in in all those little details and I wonder I'm I'm that's probably the most inspiring thing to me the thing that inspires me most in in sound and and music and I'm always wondering how to capture that or reshare it because it's almost paradoxical to do so as mm. the world to me is the most interesting music yeah. just going outside that's the most interesting music so why would i even be trying to make something else mm. um but i'm still trying so. <laughs> <laughs> that feels so much part of the project uh, your musical project viewfinder uh, mm. which is you're still developing it's in process and the tracks you create are, have such a distinctive vibe to them um, but I think also a really distinctive perspective on the world. Do you feel like it, this is the same sort of approach you take when you're creating a viewfinder track, taking little details from the world and building a, a sonic environment? Or tell us more about the, the general ethos of, of um, the viewfinder tracks. Hmm. I guess that the idea of the viewfinder as an object sums it up decently well um, because the viewfinder to me in a camera or in as a drawing tool is like this kind of arbitrary boundary around like a small snippet of the world which may contain some full objects that we have names for but also might just contain shapes from like snippets of other things mm. <laughs> and what ends up in there might also be extremely random um but sometimes that juxtaposition is really beautiful mm. and that's what i'm interested in mm. sometimes it's also not though sometimes it's not interesting mm. um and then it doesn't work mm -hmm. but i think I like sounds that are kind of initially unrelated to each other. 
But we're kind of hanging out together, forcing it a little bit sometimes, forcing them to do so a little bit sometimes. But the idea of them being in the same place never really came from nowhere somehow. Do you feel that way about a lot of our urban environments, which are pretty artificial, that there are a lot of, there's a lot of incongruence in our sonic environments? There are so many weird things happening. Uh, <laughs> this is a small, tiny example, but I was at a lake with a friend a few weeks ago and we were what, and it was full kind of nature, sound and landscape. And there were these cute baby ducks following their mama duck on the lake. And we were watching them. And then just behind them, uh, I guess there was a fisherman. And I guess he had some kind of very high-tech electronic equipment with him for his fishing. But we could just barely see him. And all of a sudden, this very mechanical sign tone beeping starts emanating from the ducks as we see it. <laughs> Oh my god! Oh my goodness! What what is that? What is that sound? I said it's the ducks, <laughs> <laughs> and it really, as you were sitting there, it really seemed like it was just the ducks beeping. And there's so much weird stuff like that happening all the time in any environment where people have <laughs> entered. You know, uh-huh. yeah. Um, Side duck. Yeah. <laughs> weird ducks. Um, yeah, so the city in that sense, and also this nature city overlap that I brought up before is is very interesting to me in that sense. Mm. Yeah, it yeah, actually makes me even more excited for that album project. Um, that, you're right, there's, there are absurd, truly absurd relationships um, that happen in these environments. In fact, even the fact that cars and birds our daily coexistence <laughs> for example sound. yeah um it, yeah is i mean it's commonplace for us and in some ways feels obvious but it's very unnatural mm-hmm. speaking of birds i know they're a major interest of yours at the moment um what's going on there for you? <laughs> what a good question what's going on there what is going on with the birds <laughs> that's the question they know very they're, they're they're, they know. They run the show here, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. It's kind of a new uh, random interest. Or it feels random in the sense that I feel like I just didn't give Birdsong the uh, emotional or academic time of day mm-hmm. in my life before. And I was really stunned by uh, the birds in Berlin, I guess. I find them to just have particularly diverse and interesting song. And I had this kind of uh, exclamation moment with that at some point and then did a little bit of research and found that there's actually an American writer who's from where I grew up who's very interested in the sounds of of nature, uh, including bugs and birds and their coexistence with urban environments. And he's actually written a book specifically about the birds in Berlin wow. <laughs> uh, because they do they do weird things. They have picked up uh, these mechanical sounds, for example, Whoa. of the city. No way. Um, yeah, like construction sounds or techno. And so the nightingales here are oh my God. making sounds like no other nightingales anywhere else. Wow. 
It's super interesting. Birds are really amazing. Are they jamming out techno tunes? Or? I guess so. <laughs> they have their secret secret club going on. <laughs> yeah. In Temple Hofferfeld that night. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. Bird club. Yeah. <laughs> they love it. Bird hind. <laughs> Bird hind. <laughs> oh my goodness. Mm. I know you, you've also read a book or reading a book about um, the theory that insects even gave rise to rhythm in humans. Is that right? Or? Yeah, that's one of the one of the things he brings up. Certainly, that's yeah. a crazy thought. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, I mean, all all those species existed long before humans did, and we were probably observing them as we were co-evolving or mm. evolving afterwards. So it does make a good bit of sense to me. It's true. Yeah, birds and insects. That's true. Even the woodpecker. Mm-hmm. So you're field recording now. Um, you're working with with found material. Um, you're putting stuff in sounds in dialogue with each other. What do you think? What other things do you think you're doing now that you weren't when you started out making music? Well, do you mean making music uh, with a computer? <laughs> mm, making music with a computer. <laughs> because I did. I did previously, you know, play instruments and play with bands, and that was really different um and much more about the process and the expression in the moment which was really cool and I think that's actually what I'm trying to get more back to Mm. kind of got lost when I started doing the computer stuff Mm. um yeah and also this this desire to like finalize everything that's already been captured I think I'm trying to see it all as a more malleable material. Picture it as like all these, you know, pieces of tape recordings laid out on my desk rather than like the hard drives closed up and slaughtered away somewhere. Um, Yeah, and that's been really liberating and also leads to this more exploratory nature of each session when when I sit down to do something. Uh, and having more fun. Mm-hmm. I'm actually having fun, which <laughs> is good. Uh, and yeah, and then this uh, working with with other people again. It's been a long a long time coming, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm super excited about it. How did Viewfinder actually get started? Viewfinder did begin in, indeed as a a, a DJ act hmm. at Stanford. I was at Stanford at first. It was junior year. Um, I think I went to a party on the Theta Chi roof where Eugenia and Mac were playing a a DJ set. Hmm. And I I thought, wow, this is great. And then I I played at a party at EBF, I think, was my first one. I got a little uh, DJ controller, a little tractor DJ controller. I remember my dad saying, uh, oh, that's cool, but this isn't going to become like your profession or anything, right? <laughs> like, no, 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 no worries. Fast forward, it's seven years. <laughs> Going out recording birds. <laughs> um, yeah, and that, and so the DJing thing was uh, semi-successful, like I guess in in some arbitrarily measurable ways, like more so than the music I write, which people seem to be sometimes confused by so far. 
um, <laughs> the DJing thing was a little bit e easier in a way and uh, really, really fun and rewarding. And still, yeah, still lots to, lots to learn there. Mm. Uh, I was playing a bit around San Francisco in the next two years after that before I moved to Berlin. And uh, yeah, I got to meet a lot of really nice people in the music scene, other people making music, DJs, promoters, uh, listeners, ravers. Mm. Um, and that was, yeah, a really great, a great part of my experience in the Bay Area as it evolved. I was mainly playing, uh, I guess, techno, drum and bass, house, friend, mm. uh, weird Russian rock. Like I tried to mix it up a bit. Um, yeah, and then at some point in the middle of that, or towards the beginning as well, I suppose, I thought uh, maybe I should have a stab at making something. Mm. I don't know. I was listening to a lot of IDME stuff at the time. It's my first real opening to like uh, Boards of Canada and mm. stuff like this. And I remember listening to to music like that and thinking, hmm, I should try to do something like this. And I didn't realize <laughs> what the kind of path that would send me on. <laughs> yeah, and how challenging. Uh, it's crazy. That stuff is. Yeah, I mean, it takes a lifetime to develop, and sometimes it doesn't work even in the lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm still glad. I'm still glad I I decided to get a synth that day. Hell yeah! Yeah. And what what did you get? The one I still use, actually. Hmm. I only ever really bought and used one synth because it's so. It just I feel it fits so well. The Korg MS20 Mini. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, just working. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so I had the synth and I had, I think, pro probably a cracked version of Ableton Live sitting in my uh, room in Crothers senior year. Crothers. Crothers. Oh, that name <laughs> always gives me the shivers. <laughs> um, you also remix tracks uh, for musicians and friends. When you get given a track to remix, what are you thinking about? Most of the time, I actually have a choice of tracks from the person who asks for the remix. And that's nice because I usually am guided to something pretty quickly right away. Um, at least in the past few experiences, it has been from albums that I had already been listening to a lot before. So I kind of had already some some bond maybe with with some pieces over other ones. Mm -hmm. And it's usually clear to me like which elements I would want to reuse and uh, which elements make a piece of music what it is for me. Um And then, yeah, maybe taking that element and putting it in a different environment, uh, for example. Mm. And trying to draw out maybe a different set of feelings that it gives me, which maybe wasn't the exact direction that the original creator took it. Like it meant something slightly different to them, of course, as it should. Um, yeah, and just trying to draw out my own personal connection to whatever that element was mm. and there's uh actually a viewfinder remix of 
another artist who we've spoken with, Freddie Avis, and his project Arswain, um, which is going to be coming out pretty soon. I think by the time you hear this, it'll probably already be out. So keep your ears peeled for that. Uh, it's awesome. Obviously, it's a difficult time for everyone at the moment um, with COVID and a lot of unstable political situations, um, social inequality. Where do you see yourself focusing on in the coming year, in 2021, uh, with your music practice? Main thing is not putting too much pressure on myself Mm. uh, to output anything because I... Yeah, I don't want to lose the the fun element of it. And because I feel like there are other important things to do, there are issues I want to educate myself further on and uh, general processes of learning how to be a better person every day, which mm-hmm. take up time that I'm very willing to allow it to take up. Um, and I think right now performing doesn't seem and it was never really something that I, aside from DJing I think currently with the viewfinder project I'm not really interested in doing that too much but collaborating with other people is very possible right now with at least with Berlin's kind of health status uh, and even meeting new people <laughs> is possible which was also happening mm-hmm. and then collaborating with them um So I think it's going to be, yeah, a a lot more of that, a lot more of kind of listening to the voices of others and uh, drawing our voices out together, hopefully, Mm -hmm. because I can't can't sit behind the screen alone anymore. It's a, it can be a very lonely existence. Yeah, sure. I mean, I can yeah. I can sometimes. I do yeah. enjoy it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but alone, it doesn't work somehow. Or in it, only that process on its own. I'd like to ask if you were able to give some words of advice to anyone coming from a a more scientific, a more quote unquote logical background. Um, with an interest to move into an artistic practice or just to explore a more creative side of themselves. Um, what do you think you'd say? Hmm. Uh, don't be afraid. Hmm. <laughs> At least try it because probably something there is going to be interesting. And Making sure that you have stability, I suppose, is important. Still, uh, when you go to explore new things, whether that means uh, sort of physically, financially, psychologically, mm. uh, it is it is uh, helpful to have at least a little kernel of like uh, knowing how to come back to yourself. Knowing how to check back in with yourself once you've tried something out to see if it's working for you. Mm. Uh, not just throwing away everything you've had before to go to the next thing. Because actually all the stuff you've done before is a part of you and will probably come in very handy. Uh, it's crucial, actually. Mm. And yeah, 
I think this is maybe for anyone also, but something that's I'm trying to teach myself every day is also uh, being happy to just be. Like when you're creating, whether it's engineering or art, um, or when you're also defined by those terms, you're always expected to be putting something out. Oh, what are you working on? Oh, what's the last thing you made? Oh, what's the last thing you did? And that's cool. Like it's good to be pushed by those questions, but uh, there are also going to be times when you are not inspired, or you are inspired, but it's not happening, or you are, or for whatever reason, like you can't get into the studio, or COVID <laughs> happened, or yeah. I don't know, you're tired, or you're sick, or something. Um, and those moments are always going to come. And if you are only judging yourself by what you can make, then you might get really sad. Mm. I've definitely been there. And I think learning how to just enjoy existence in those moments and just stop all those thoughts, look around, look at the the person next to you or the plant in your room or whatever the heck it is and just breathe in and out and say, okay, I'm alive, I'm here, and things are still good, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is Yeah, it really frees, frees things up for me. Cool. Well, Anna, thank you so much for uh, a very holistic, zen, uh, and ear-opening interview uh, and conversation, really. Um, it's been wonderful to have you on. I feel like I'm going to go outside. My hearing is going to be refreshed. Oh. <laughs> and I hope everyone else feels the same way. Um, I wish you all the best with your music, and I'm sure we'll be hearing from you soon. Thanks a lot for having me. And if you'd like to hear more of what Anna was talking about, you can either step outside and listen to your local bird party, or tune on in to the Viewfinder SoundCloud page. Both are as luscious as each other. And of course, there's our Instagram page, at Show, where you can find a curiously oscillating sample of the Viewfinder frequencies. In Process is produced independently by myself, Will Hamilton, with music by Freddie Avis. That's it for today, folks. Keep on paddling, and see you next time. <laughs>